Please turn your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. We'll actually just be studying verses 9 through 11 instead of the whole verses 5 through 18. So you turn there with me, and as we do so, let's pray together. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto Thee. O Lord, I pray that You would speak, that Your people would hear Your voice through Your message, through Your messenger. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Always a special joy for me to be with you, and I bring you greetings from Savannah and from IPC. It is a special privilege for me to step into my, I think of him as my big brother uh, in the ministry, Reverend Mark. Uh, he's a, someone I look up to greatly, and it's a, it's a great privilege to stand in this pulpit, and it's a great privilege to be coming back here over a few years to know when this building and this congregation was but a dream, and to see it materialized. You know, so much of the work you do in ministry grows invisible fruit that can't be quantified, seen, or touched, and to see a building, and to see a building full of brothers and sisters, that's a great joy for me and a great, great privilege to be here. Let's go ahead and read our text, James chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11. James instructs, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So we turn to the book of James. Remember, of course, that the writer is most likely not the James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, but is more likely James, the brother of Jesus, the one who was, you know, pastor of First Presbyterian Jerusalem in the first century, when the, the bishop over the whole church of Jerusalem mentioned uh, throughout the book of Acts, convening the council of Jerusalem, uh, who the apostle Paul in Galatians 1 names as an apostle. He has quite a resume, and if you notice there in verse 1, he doesn't lean on that resume. No, he, he ironically understates it, simply a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ironically enough, even his own big brother. And he's speaking to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Perhaps an ironic, certainly a poetic way, I think, of speaking to the church. He's writing this letter to, to the dispersion. The dispersion was the special way of speaking what happened to Israel after the exile, after they came out of Babylon and after the northern kingdom had fallen and the southern kingdom had fallen, and they were all dispersed and they had been exiled and persecuted. They were of the diaspora, the dispersion. James is applying that same idea, not to the 12 tribes of Israel, which really don't exist after the northern kingdom falls, 10 tribes being essentially lost to history. No, to the 12 tribes that replaced those 12 tribes. That is, 
the true Israel, the church. He's speaking to the church in the first century who is exiled, persecuted, members of his own congregation spread all over the known world. And, and what he says to them, it's always surprising to me. I think we live in a day and an age, you know, it's very therapeutic and uh, very sensitive, and we want to be very gentle with everyone. We just want to, you know, talk about our brokenness and, you know, just how to get from week to week. And, and uh, you know, we're just so glad you made it here this morning and all that. Well, James, his tack to these exiled, dispersed Christians under the, the, the hammer of persecution is a very different tone. He says there in verse 2, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Stirring and difficult. Ironic, surprising words again. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or strength and endurance. He says, and let that steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And I do think, as a number of Good commentators point out that really verse 4 gives us what James is driving at, what he wants for the congregations of the Lord Jesus. The church is under persecution. The church is in the modern world today. The church in this building, he wants us to be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. That word perfect is teleuse. It's a, it's a word that you know, he, he defines for us lacking nothing. doesn't mean, you know, absolutely morally perfect. You know, that, that would be an ideal. But the Lord Jesus self, himself says, oh, that you would be perfect even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. The uh, Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28, the goal of his ministry is that he present them mature in Christ. That same word, teleos, means mature, complete. It's helpful for me to think about that what James is getting at is that um, no members of your church, of our congregation, would be lacking. You know, we wouldn't have servants of the Lord Jesus. We wouldn't have uh, church members who are only ever limping because they're missing a leg or they're bleeding out in the battlefield. No, if the church of Jesus Christ in the exile, in the dispersion, is to, to gain ground, the whole platoon needs to be complete. You need to have the attitude of the the Navy SEALs, or perhaps in this congregation, uh, the, the Marine recons. Hey, no pain, no gain. Count it joy. Lean in. Let, let the suffering, let the trials have their full effect so that you can grow strong spiritually. And he, he, verse 5, he, he begins to explain it more. That, that, that spiritual fullness, completeness, you really can't have the perspective of seeing the trials of life as a joy, as a positive, unless you have what's there in verse 5. He tells him, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask. And then he goes on even in verse 6, uh, even giving what might be a, a presupposition to wisdom. You can't really have wisdom or even ask for it unless you have faith. How, what, what does it mean if you're asking God for something, if you're not even believing or trusting the God you're asking? If you really knew the God you were asking, you would trust Him, you'd believe Him. No, he says you have to be Verse 6b, not doubting. That is, verse 8, not double-minded, not unstable, fully committed, all in. See, he is looking for spiritual Rambos, ready to take the battlefield for Christ. Whether you like it or not, 
The moment you're a believer, the fiery darts of the evil one come for you. We find ourselves in the battle. And James is intent that you and I, those followers of Christ, would be mature, lacking in nothing, complete. So that um, the complete one, right, has wisdom, has faith, is fully committed. And as we come to verses 9 through 11, our text for this morning, I, I really think he's, he's seeking to give us an, an illustration uh, of what, it, what this wisdom you're asking for, you know you need the perspective you have to have to be complete, how it applies to your wealth. If I was to retitle my message this morning, it would be Wisdom for Wealth. And very simply, our, our outline this morning, and I'm sorry to come around to it so slowly, is just two points. Verse 9, wisdom for the lowly. And then verses 10 through 11, wisdom for the wealthy. Now, those are just two points, but each of those has three sub-points. If you're following along, you like to take notes. The, the, the wisdom for the lowly will be the what, the how, and the why. And then, again, the second point, the wisdom for the wealthy We'll have the what, the how, and the why. James wants us to be complete, mature in Christ. And to be that, we have to grasp what it means as it applies to our wealth. What it means to be in Christ, complete in Him. How that applies to our wealth or our lack of it. So, look at verse 9 with me. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. That word for lowly could be translated either as poor or humble. Because of verse 10, and he's speaking directly to the, the, the rich, I think it does have a, um, a monetary focus. So I, I think a better, perhaps, you know, translation would be to speak exactly to the poor, wisdom to the poor, which is, a, this is an interesting, uh, you know, conversation to have because there's a lot of distance between the first century and the 21st century. Namely, that in the first century, there's really only the very, very poor and the very, very rich. There's not much of a middle class. And I assume most of us here this morning, you know, are generally middle class and perhaps higher or lower. But as James speaks, uh, we ought to to think about perhaps what is the, uh, the worldly wisdom that is not this wisdom, in verse 9, to boast in your exaltation. That's an ironic thing to say, we'll come to. But what is the worldly wisdom to the poor in our own day? What are the messages that, uh, you know, we think, well, that, that, that poor person, they got to have this. And I, I think one of them might be uh, what I call the the wisdom of the hustle. Uh, Damon Johns is one of my favorite sharks on Shark Tank, if you have, perhaps you know the show. And he, he has this book called The Power of Broke, which I think, you know, contains the whole idea in the title that really there, in your brokenness, in your poverty, there is a key to doing whatever it takes to hustle yourself out of poverty and into riches. Really, the thing about poverty, uh, the worldly wisdom about poverty, is you have to do whatever it takes to avoid it. Do anything, lie, cheat, steal, to avoid po being poor and get rich. That's really what life's about, right? That's the, perhaps the general worldly wisdom. And, you know, it's interesting as you think about the Bible. I think there's a number of illustrations where that wisdom is applied. We think of 
Gehazi, uh, the, the servant of Elisha in 2 Kings 7, after Naaman has been healed of his uh, leprosy, uh, he knows Elisha said, you know, you know, remember Naaman came with all these clothes and loads of money, and you know, Elisha says, keep your gold and your money. Uh, Gehazi is not so sure about that, and he, of course he runs down Naaman and he takes all the riches and goods, and of course himself contracts leprosy and judgment. Or we can think of um, Achan in Joshua 7. Just after the great battle of Jericho, uh, uh, they're going to go fight Ai, but they lose to Ai when the Lord has given them salvation in Jericho. And what's the problem? There's someone in Israel who's living according to the wisdom of the world. He, he went in, instead of devoting them to destruction, all the silver and the clothes he found in Jericho, no, he kept them for himself. He actually hid them under his tent. And of course, that story ends with Achan and his family being swallowed by the earth. Or we might think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, willing to lie, cheat, and steal, lie directly to the apostles' face about giving all their money uh, to the Lord, all the while holding some back you know, for themselves. Or we might even think of the pre-converted Zacchaeus, willing to lie, cheat, and steal, do whatever it takes to get ahead. No, James doesn't counsel lie, cheat, and steal, or hustle to get out of poverty. No, he says, rather, boast in your exaltation. <clears throat> Nor does he counsel what I think is a common line to the poor in our day, <clears throat> that really it, it, it's not right and it's not your fault. It's, it's really the man's fault, and you should stick it to him. It's a message that really all poor are victims. <clears throat> it's, really, it's the man's duty to spread his wealth around. And if you vote this way, you can ensure that exactly that happens. You have a right to be angry. You have a right to be bitter and a right to protest and takes what's yours and revolts. You know, the, the Marxist ideal, right? Whether you follow the history of Lenin or Mao leads, of course, to the greatest atrocities in the history of the world. Of course, in this name of uh, communism, it's, it's a worldly wisdom to the poor to rise up and take what should be yours. Or, no, the, the true wisdom James gives to the lowly, the poor, is exalt and your exaltation. Not to hustle yourself to death, do whatever it takes, not to be bitter. And, he, and even at, at first glance, you look at verse 9, let the lowly brother you know, uh, boast in his exaltation, we might be tempted to think that that's a whole other strand of worldly wisdom. That to, it's really just, don't be so negative. You know, be positive. Right? It's a kind of you know, Trumpian, Norman Vincent Peale, power of positive thinking. Name it and claim it. You know, manifest it into the universe. That's what poor people are supposed to do. You know, uh, uh, think about it until it comes to pass. But indeed, this prosperity gospel is worldly wisdom and foolishness. Know that the wisdom from God through James to you, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What does that mean? Well, to the lowly brother who is a believer in the Lord Jesus, there is much to exalt in. The exaltation might not be, however, physical or visible. The exaltation for the Christian, for the lowly brother, is certainly spiritual and eternal. So what exaltation does the poor, lowly Christian have? Well, how about we begin to think about some of the benefits we have in Christ. Those who believe Christ and are united to Him by the Holy Spirit, through whom the benefits of Christ flow to us, what are some of those? Well, how about, how about our 
adoption, our adoption, the fact that being a Christian means you are a child of God, or as Romans 8 explains in the most unimaginable of ways, that we are co-heirs of God with Christ. Our inheritance is more valuable than the tesseract. It's more valuable than the most viable thing you can think of in mythological worlds. It's God himself. And we're co-heirs with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We are made a part of the royal family. The, the story of the prince and the pauper is your story. The story of the prodigal son who is uh, and one day eating pods among the pigs is the next day having a ring on his finger, the fatted calf for himself, wearing the robe of, of forgiveness on his back, accepted by his father into the family again. That's the thing to exalt in. Or it might take another benefit of our salvation in Christ that we become, when we are saved, when we put faith in Christ, that the bride of Christ. That is spiritually and eternally the exaltation that comes to us is that we are no longer destitute and poor and lowly, but are indeed truly and eternally spiritually forever made bride to the king of kings and lord of lords he who owns the cattle on a thousand hills the the story of of gomer and the prophet hosea who takes gomer from her harlotry ah the whore from the ditch and raises her as his own is is our story is your story indeed the the samaritan woman is our story we, as we, like her, look for love in all the wrong places, having five husbands, the man you're with now, not your husband. Jesus says to her, He whom you are looking for, I am. Jesus makes us His bride. He, he brings us from nothing and destitution and loneliness and exalts us to be the bride of Christ. So that's the, that's the what, and even that's the how. It's believing this, but but why? You know, why? Why is this his, his advice, his, his, world, his wisdom, encounter the worldly wisdom? Well, because, as he points out in verses 10 and 11, that all the wisdom of the world is fading, but this wisdom, this truth, moth and rust don't destroy it, and thieves can't break in and steal it. It is eternally secure. Uh, indeed, this life is short, but the next is long. To, to wake up as Pastor Mark does and be thinking about heaven is one of the best things we can do in all of our spiritual lives. To know that someday in eternity with God forever, when we are truly exalted and what we have in part spiritually unseen will be fully revealed that what had passed in the previous life would be but like a bad dream compared to the reality we know in Christ forever. This is, in fact, what our Lord Jesus teaches. You know, well, the, the book of James, it almost runs as a kind of commentary on his big brother Jesus' teaching. Luke 16, Jesus teaches the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores 
who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That is, he was exalted. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. This is wisdom about our wealth. The true picture, Jesus says, is that the lowly man, Lazarus, will be exalted, he who has faith. And the rich man who gives his life to his pursuits will be ultimately humiliated. No, the key here for the one who is complete in Christ, who has the wisdom of God, he is able to take God's eternal truth, what the Bible teaches, and to apply it to every sphere of your life, and perhaps most importantly, your money, the thing we love and look to most. So that is, we might say, our first point, the wisdom to the lowly, the what, how, and why. And secondly, we turn to the wisdom to the wealthy. And as I said before, this this interesting distance between the first century and 21st century, and now we being in the middle class, um, my experience of being, you know, solidly middle class is that depending on your context, you might feel quite rich or quite poor, depending on, you know, where you are. I, you know, I grew up in a small town. My dad's an emergency room physician. I was one of the wealthier families in town, and I was very thankful. And then I went off to college in Chicago and made friends with people that I felt like a pauper next to. Or even if we were to, you know, compare, you know, world poverty, the, po- the most impoverished peoples in America, if you've been to the third world in Africa and South America and Indonesia, you know the, the difference in poverty. So that, and my, my only point being, uh, it helps to be middle class because really uh, verses 9 and 10 apply to all of us depending on the situation. And indeed, it is the same wisdom being applied. The poor need to think spiritually about their poverty and the wealthy need to think spiritually about their wealth. Look at verse 10 again, which, again with me. It says, and the rich in his exaltation, the rich should exalt in his humiliation. Which I would like to point out again is, a, is, is the opposite of worldly wisdom. What is the worldly wisdom to the wise about their wealth? Well, perhaps the mantras of our day say that if you got it, flaunt it. Or say that really the economy needs you to spend it. Or really, it's your job to express yourself in your brand loyalty. To show yourself as someone who is fun and adventuresome and interesting. To travel on, uh, and to, to boast of your travels on your Facebook or Instagram. That really you deserve that extra bit of comfort and security in that neighborhood with that car and that house. No, the, the world says to the rich always, not exalt in your humiliation, but really the opposite, to, to exalt in your exaltation. You've earned it. It's yours. Enjoy it. But how does this wisdom of 
exalt in her humiliation make any sense? What does this even, uh, does it, what, what does it mean? That's the first point. What does it mean to exalt in humiliation? Well, I point out that there is no Christian brother or sister who does not at some level exalt in their humiliation. This is what the story of the rich young ruler illustrates. Of course, he comes in Matthew 19 to Jesus as the star recruit. He's got power and wealth and status, and he needs all, you know, Jesus' fledgling movement. He's the guy they need. You know, plug and play. He can build the next church for them, whatever they need. You know, he's got the things. And he comes with a perfect question. You know, have you ever been asked, how do I get to heaven? Well, that's what the rich young ruler says to Jesus. And Jesus, he seems to fumble it, right? He says, what do I, must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, believe. No. Matthew 19, verse 17. He says, why do you ask me uh, what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And of course, the rich man says to him, well, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the rich man says, well, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, or tell you complete, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In the same scene, uh, Jesus goes on teaching. He says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, the rich young ruler, Jesus is put, pushing him to, to choose one or the other. To either exalt, find comfort, find status, find yourself in your own wealth, or to humiliate yourself in knowing that it's not your wealth. It's not your status. It's not your power that should give you any comfort or identity. No, despair of what the world says gives you the status, comfort, and power, and come to me and me alone. The rich person, if he's a believer, must exalt in their humiliation that they cannot buy the grace of God. Indeed, the grace of God is free, Totally free. It comes to anyone who asks. There is nothing you can give to buy it, and yet the grace of God is costly. It costs you everything to follow in His way. And it is this, you know, it is worldly wisdom uh, to worship at the altar of mammon, of money, morning, noon, and night. It's what keeps you from taking Sabbath. It's what keeps you from taking joy in your tithing. It's what keeps you from sleeping. No, the reality of what James is teaching, why should the rich brother exalt in his humiliation? Because of the fading and because of the judgment. To summarize briefly, what does it mean to exalt in your humiliation? It means to reject the worldly wisdom of finding identity, comfort, yourself in your riches. 
and to cling only to Christ. Humiliate yourself and cling to him by his grace alone. How does one do it? In the same way that the lowly do. They see their wealth through spiritual eyes, through an informed wisdom of God's truth applied to their lives. Now, now why? Why should you and I put this into practice? And this is where James majors. He says in verse 10, well, why should we do this? Well, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich men fade away. Because of the fading and because of the judgment. My, my children love to pick my wife um, flowers of the grass, even as it says in verse 10. Not, not just the flowers that come from the florist. You know, like a good rose might last a couple days, you know, in a vase. You got the thing in the green thing, and it, you know, it lasts a little while. No, you know, the dandelions and the clovers, the ones that come out of the grass, they, they don't last long. Maybe a day. Such is not only the wealth, but the man. I'm old enough now to have watched the, the rich and famous, you know, the idols of my childhood, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. or Allen Iverson or Michael Jordan are now basically old, fat, middle-aged men. Those who are, whose posters were on my walls as a kid, are, are, they're far from that now. Or I think of the presidents as always a helpful illustration. You, you perhaps remember what George Bush or Barack Obama looked like when they entered office versus what they looked like leaving office, or I think especially this year of George Bush uh, at World Series Game 1 uh, at the Rangers stadium, stadium in Texas, you know, throwing out the first pitch. It was not the same kind of first pitch as he threw in 2001 at Yankee Stadium after, 20, after, after 9-11 where he, he hummed a strike over the plate. No, George Bush barely got it to home plate. It was painful to watch. Such do the rich and powerful in our day. They all fade like the grass. And of course, here is Jesus' teaching. James referring to it. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, spiritual joys, eternal treasures where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Peter quotes Isaiah when he says that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. You see, in exalting and in his humiliation, the rich man is freed of fading. There is eternal life in him. But also, he's freed from the judgment. I do think the judgment is what is symbolically there in verse 11. That is when the sun rises and its scorching heat comes down. There is a day when the scorching heat of the sun will come for all of us. When the fire is applied and all that is dross burns up. It's the picture Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 3. It's what John Piper so memorably illustrates in his famous sermon uh, picturing the Floridians in retirement in Florida, offering God their shell collection. Look what I've done for you, Lord, my shells. So James says here, the rich man will fade away in the midst of 
his pursuits. You, you see, I hope, the antithesis. The antithesis between worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God. We are lacking. We are incomplete in Christ. We are fools if we don't have this wisdom. If we're not applying it to our lives. We are blown about, no doubt. See, the, the spiritually wise one knows what the Bible says about our wealth. Namely, that it isn't ours. That's a hard thing for good conservatives like us to say. Remember when Barack Obama, you know, at a campaign stop said, you know, your business, you didn't build that. And we're all kind of like, well, yes, we did. Of course we did. Well, there, there is a sense in which, of course, every seed we've ever sown, every minute we've ever labored has been providentially either blessed or cursed by God. Anything we have, we know are ultimately, we are but his stewards and we are, he is our master. Our tithing, our giving is a first fruits offering, acknowledging the truth that it is not my own. That I, I, I am responsible to give an account, not only of every word that I say, every dollar I spend. I work, serve him and not me. This is true not only of our money, of course, but of our children. I think of this Regularly, our, our, our Baptist brothers and sisters, you know, miss out on the Lord's uh, wisdom and the covenant uh, pedo baptism. But every time they do one of those waterless baptisms, they, uh, a dedication of a child, they illustrate straight well the same truth. That even the, the treasures of our homes, our children, are not our own. We are but stewards of them to render unto him. He gives them to us. We give them back to him and seek to turn them out for his glory such as our mother Hannah, as she exemplifies for us of Samuel. Now, none of this um, here, I think, you know, in any rightful way, counsels out the, the good biblical wisdom of Dave Ramsey. We are to be good stewards. We are to manage our wealth well. We ought to save. We ought to invest well. We ought to think strategically and budget and all these things, no doubt. And yet if we miss this, if we don't think about our wealth spiritually, we are incomplete and lacking. So why boast in humiliation? Well, to be freed from the fading, freed from the judgment, and also set free. Set free, number one, to unity in the mission and generosity in the mission. Unity because to be in the church is to be one of the few places where where perhaps truly rich and truly poor rub elbows. Perhaps the church in the DMV. I, I, I tend to think that all of our efforts at diversity and equity and inclusion and our higher education and our hiring practices, it is so forced and it takes an immense amount of labor to ever accomplish. And it's always only ever truly a, a counterfeit of the true unity in diversity, which the Christian church ought to exemplify, where the, where the boundaries of race and class and, and money and wealth are torn down and there's true unity in the church. And a rich person who is able to exalt in their humiliation and a poor person who can exalt in their exaltation can sit together in the pew and know God together. That's a beautiful scene of true unity in diversity. So also, you're freed to generosity for the mission. Our Lord Jesus, he teaches us about wealth when he says, it is more blessed to give 
than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Is there any more antithetical wisdom to the world? No, if our money is the Lord's and we are but His stewards, let us remember the example of the foolish steward who, who, who hid his talent in the earth, who protected himself, who, who thought he could indulge his desire for safety, but he indeed was cast out into the utter darkness. Rather, the Lord loves a cheerful gift giver. We are to invest what he's given us for his glory. This is the how and the why and the what of the wisdom to the lowly and to the rich. It's the wisdom of Jesus. He says it's more difficult for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. It's he who says you cannot serve both God and money. It's he who says store up treasure in heaven. This is a call for all those who would be complete in him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the wisdom from another world. Father, I pray that even as we are in this in-between age, uh, and experience already of all the benefits we have in Christ. We look forward, O oh Lord, to the not yet, when our faith shall be sight, when we shall feel and know the full realization of our exaltation in Christ and our humiliation before Him also. What a joy it is, Father, to hold fast to the eternal and spiritual benefits we have in Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.